Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Shatranjay Mall. Today I am speaking to Dr. Anthony Best about his new book, British Engagement with Japan, 1854 to 1922, The Origins and Course of an Unlikely Alliance, which was published by Routledge in 2020. Professor Best is a professor of international history at the London School of Economics. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Professor Best. Thank you. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in Japanese and East Asian history? Um, I grew up in London. Um, I've lived most of my life in London, apart from the time when I was an undergraduate student. I did my undergraduate at the University of Leeds in a degree program called International History and Politics. Um, So I'm not one of those who writes about Japan from a Japanese studies background. Um, I came to be interested by accident more than anything else. I was looking for a topic for my undergraduate dissertation. And I thought to myself, if Britain is at war with Germany in 1941, it seems very unfortunate to uh, also land yourself in a war with Japan. How could this possibly have happened? And um, I came up with that question and my my life was set on a different course. So I, I, I look at it as an accident more than anything else. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that that's 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 very interesting to hear that you you came from like an international uh, politics or national studies perspective rather than from uh, a Japanese studies perspective. Yes, and I I think that that shows in all the work that I've done is um, one thing that's that's always on my mind is uh, a knowledge of broader international history in the nineteenth and twentieth century. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that, that that sort of comes across uh, in, in, in this book and in your previous book, too, which I've um, read. Um, so uh, we will next actually now move to talking about your new book, 
Um, so what is the genesis of this project and how did you come about to write it? Um, and related to that, what do you see as its core argument? Um, it's been a, a long gestation, this book. Um, my previous book came out in, what, 2002, 2003. Um, so this, this took um, 18 years um, to write. I began with... Um, presenting papers for the first time as a young academic um, on sabbatical in Japan and um, presenting on the 1930s and having a number of um, Japanese interlocutors saying to me, well, what about race? Where's the significance of race in your view of Anglo-Japanese relations? And back in the 90s, I, I didn't really know the answer. Um, I didn't know, I wasn't sure there was a methodology that I could draw upon to give a convincing answer. Um, so that was, that was one aspect of it. And then, um, in addition, um, through my doctoral supervisor, Professor Ian Nish, I was involved in something called the Anglo-Japanese History Project. And I was asked to produce a quite broad essay on Anglo-Japanese relations in the 1930s. And in writing that, I thought, well, I don't want to do this just in terms of the attitude of diplomats and politicians. I want to look at broad public opinion. And as I came to do that and to look more at the public sphere, I thought to myself, well, there's a whole world here that hasn't really been tapped into. Um, my initial lunatic idea for this book was to produce something that would be a study from 1854 to the 1970s. Um, and about 10 years in, I realized that that book would be far too large um, and that I needed to actually divide the project into, into smaller segments. And so I decided to begin at the beginning with 1854 um, to 1922. Even then, to a degree, I, I, I struggled in how to conceptualize it. And then the, the, the key argument to it that I finally landed upon was, well, if Britain signs an alliance with Japan in 1902, then how was it possible for the British government to do that um, with the confidence that this would be acceptable to the British public if we take into account the fact that there was such a large racial, cultural, um, religious divide between Britain and Japan. How does one explain that? Um, and that's, that became the, the, the core of the book. How do we actually explain this, how an alliance could be formed at the moment when the Yellow Peril is... Um, being discussed um, so much in the West. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that really comes across also in your uh, book, how to, so, sort of the, the diplomatic angle and also like the racial and cultural angle um, interplay between these two, um, uh, between these two topics. Yeah, and feeling that there were two methodologies that were pulling in different directions. Um, and... There was still, even if one accepted a cultural history methodology, how do you get to explain the fact that the British public um, did not 
express outrage at this cross-racial alliance in 1902? Yes, exactly. I mean, actually, this um, this uh, is connected to one, one of the next questions that I wanted to ask um, um, about. Uh, actually, before we go to that question, actually, um, I'll, actually I'll, I'll probably just remain and go in order um, about... Um, um, so uh, um, the, your book title mentions two specific dates, um, 1854 and 1922. So um, for, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the history of Anglo-Japanese relations, what is the significance of these two dates? And I, you've already touched on this uh, before, but uh, why do you think Britain relations between Britain and Japan are constituting this sort of unlikely alliance? Yes, the dates, the, the dates were... were um... Interesting. I mean, normally a book that looked at this relationship would begin in 1858 and the arrival of Lord Elgin um, in uh, in Edo um, to negotiate the first commercial treaty between Britain and Japan. Um, but when I was looking at the records, I became very interested in actually the first appearance of a modern Britain in Japan's waters which is um, Admiral Sterling, who arrives in Nagasaki in 1854 and is involved in discussions with the magistrate at Nagasaki um, and signs a treaty that, that really mirrors Perry's um, initial treaty with Japan. And I thought that was a more interesting moment to begin the study with that, that moment of first contact. Um, the second date, 1922, is the date of the end of the Washington Conference and the end of the Anglo-Japanese alliance. So it's a book that looks at uh, the long-term origins of the alliance and the history of the alliance, and finally, uh, why the alliance is, is brought to an end. In regard to unlikely alliance, I, I wanted to... I wanted to suggest that perhaps the diplomatic historians have taken the alliance um, as too easy in terms of its negotiations, too logical, um, that strategy dictated there should be an alliance. Well, yes, I, I think in terms of the short-term origins of the alliance, that, that's that's. Uh, a good explanation, but it's unlikely in the sense that it is bridging this chasm between Europe and the non-European world at a time when you know, so much of cultural history tells us that that is such a contentious thing to do. Mm -hmm. So that, 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 I guess, is I, I, as far as I understand, that's like your major intervention. Um, yes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That r rather than just looking at the short-term factors that led to this alliance, looking at it in a long-term perspective. Yeah, what I what I I say in the introduction, what I'm looking at throughout is that um, th there's a particularly important point of looking at alliances in peacetime. An alliance in wartime um, is a different thing to an alliance in peacetime, because an alliance in wartime is obviously driven by strategic considerations above them beyond anything else. An alliance in peacetime is something that may be signed for strategic reasons, but it needs to be sold to the public, particularly <laughs> if you consider that Britain is a representative of a parliamentary system. Um, ministers 
need to explain to the House of Commons and the House of Lords why this alliance has been signed, why it is acceptable, and ministers do not do such things lightly. Um, so there's a need to explain why they believed that this would be relatively uncontentious, considering that it is crossing this racial, cultural, and religious boundary. And, it, and in that sense, it's different from the alliance formed with the Ottomans at the beginning of the Crimean War. Uh, you know, that is about an immediate strategic danger. I think it was, it's easier to understand how that war was formed. Although even I think if you looked at um, British relations with the Ottoman Empire in the 1830s, 1840s, you can see um, an, a level of trying to suggest the progress being achieved um, under the Ottomans during that period. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so before we uh, go delve more deeply into the book, I had another question I wanted to ask about, you know, the research process. Um, so uh, so what was it like to research for this book? So did you, where, did you, where did your research take you and what sorts of uh, sources did you find especially useful? Um, um, well, as you can see from the fact that it took 18 years, I, 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 I was thoroughly self-indulgent um, and enjoyed it enormously. Um, I, what I decided to do was, um, it, it took on its own momentum, mm -hmm. um, and, and contrary to the advice that one normally gives to PhD students to sort of rein in your topic and, you know, decide where the, where the, uh, where the end of your topic is, I kept on finding new aspects of the relationship that I found interesting. Um, so the, uh, research took me to archives all over the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. um, particularly, uh, neglected county record offices, um, full of private correspondence that nobody had read and unpublished accounts of visits to Japan. Um, I did some research in the U S, um, in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. I looked at some sources in Japan, and I have, I have a slow reading knowledge of Japanese. Um, it's much less uh, advanced than, than I wish it were. Um, but it did allow me at least to understand one element which we'll return to, which is the royal diplomacy between the two countries. Um, the other thing I found, which I, I think is the most incredible thing for, for uh, all historians these days, is just how much of the contemporary published literature you can find from the 19th century now in the public domain, in digital form, um, and there at the click of a button. You know, there's no need to go into a research library anymore. You can just do it from your own home. Using, using sources like Hathi Trust and the oh, yeah. Internet Digital Archive, I, I was just stunned by how much I could look at. And again, I felt that I was, I was able through those sources to tap into books from the 19th century that were not the usual suspects. Um, that many people who write on this topic will look at 
George Curzon's book, they'll look at Isabella Bird's book. But there are so many Western travelers who come to Japan who are touring around the world. And they're, they have within their recollections of this tour maybe one or two chapters on Japan, but the title of the book doesn't mention Japan. But because all of these digital sources are now searchable, um, you can find things that perhaps previous generations of historians have neglected. Um, and it gives you a much richer sense um, of how these globetrotters perceive Japan, uh, not just in itself, but also in comparison and contrast to the other locations they visited during their journeys. So it's, there's a wealth of material out there. Thank you for sharing that. It also is, it's like food for thought for me as well as I work on my own uh, project. Um, I, I hope it would be for anybody working on the 19th century. I mean, I, I found that even when I talk to um, two PhD students and those doing master's dissertations, and I, I expect talking a young, to a younger generation that they, I, I take it for granted that they'd know this stuff exists, but apparently not. Um, so it does. And if your readers are working on the 19th century, you know, all this stuff that's out of copyright is just there, a click of a button away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially right now with the coronavirus and with uncertainty yeah. about archives. <laughs> yes, yes. And it is this ability to just tap into things that, that, uh, that, that digital search will lead you to sources that may have been neglected. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I think we can now sort of talk more about um, the book specifically. Um, so in the introduction, you provide an overview. Uh, I mean, uh, you provide an overview of the field of international history and its approach to studying relations between Great Britain and Japan. So what do you see as um, the contributions and limitations of both um, diplomatic history and cultural history? Um, and um, yeah, what do you see as your contribution in that field? Well, I when I it took me ages to write the introduction to this book. I, I don't know how many introductions I threw away. Um, I eventually landed on one that said what I wanted to say, um, which was trying, as I said, to, to understand this problem of how the alliance is formed in 1902, and feeling that nobody had explained the cultural side of it. Now, with international history, much of the work um, that has been produced on international history, um, the international history or diplomatic history of Britain and Japan, was produced, what, between the 1950s and the 1970s. Um, It is based on tried and tested methods. Um, It's multi-archival. It's very rich. But in a way, it's, there's always a tendency, partly because there is so much material out there, to focus on relatively short periods of time. So international history has a tendency to look at the immediate origins of things, the immediate origins of an alliance, the immediate origins of a war, um, the diplomacy around a peace conference. It doesn't tend or it didn't tend in the past to look so much at at the lingerie. Um, And so while I agree with um, 
the conclusions of those that came before me in, in explaining the, the short-term origins of the alliance, I felt that there, there was nothing which really delved into why trust had developed between the two countries. So it didn't answer that question. Um, as I say in the book, also I felt the standard of civilization literature that's appeared um, has explained how Japan and China began to adapt themselves to international law, but I, I, I don't get the sense that it actually deals with how this was perceived in the West to such a great degree. Um, then if one moves on to cultural history, um, I mean, partly cultural history has defined itself by, by not dealing with high politics. Um, and it does deal with the long durée, but I think sometimes by ignoring high politics, it doesn't see the degree to which high politics can actually contradict some of the assumptions that cultural history is making. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the cultural history is obviously influenced by Said and Orientalism, um, and as such, it gets to the alliance. If, if it ever gets to the alliance, it doesn't explain how it was an alliance could have bridged the racial, cultural, and religious divide. I just don't get the sense from this literature that it it wants to deal with that. And even when it, it's dealing with the long durée, in a way it elides that particular moment. I noticed that some of the books um, that were dealing with um, Western relations with Japan hardly mentioned the alliance at all. Um and will we'll, we'll dwell on the yellow peril when there's something here which really does make, raise fundamental questions about the degree to which the, the yellow peril is really a defining prism of the West's outlook on Japan. So I didn't feel the cultural history provided an answer. Um, and I suppose what I'm wanting to do in the book is to say, well, does cultural history tack too close to Orientalism and Said, is there a need perhaps for cultural history to tap more into the intellectual history of Britain in the 19th century? Which as I posit in the book, there is work um, aligned to Peter Mandler and others that's looking far more at civilization as a measure of other countries than purely race. Thank you for sharing that. I think um, this will probably um, give food for thought or, you know, be, um, future cultural historians will probably have to sort of consider like the implications of like, you know, the dipl diplomatic history the way you have. And similarly, of course, I think diplomatic historians do probably need to look at cultural intellectual history and sort of. Yeah, I think I think it's important to think to yourself, well, if if my methodology cannot explain this event, then there's a problem. Um, you, know, you you need to, if you're going to take a view that Orientalism explains everything and you get to the alliance, an alliance is based on trust, then I do think there's a need to, to consider what's going on. It's a problem. Um, I'm not arguing by any means that, you know, the, the answer from looking at Anglo-Japanese relations answers every aspect of, of British relations with the extra European world. I, I, I'm not in a position to say that. 
Um, but I am positing that he, here at least is an interesting problem to chew on. Yeah, I think even like the, the uniqueness of specificity of Japan um, probably has something to do uh, yes. with it. Yes. Yes. And as I, as I say in the book, there are certain reasons why the British do treat Japan as an isolated example in Asia. Um, and uh, the reasons for that are, are quite interesting and sometimes quite surprising. I think that, that that's a good point to move to the next question about, you know, these two contrasting views about Japan, uh, which you talk about in like both the introduction and chapter one. So there's a current that is more favorable towards Japan amongst British officials and British public opinion. And then there's another current which is less favorable. Um, and this is through the 1850s to 1860s. So could you tell our audience a little bit about these divergent views and the interplay between these more positive views of Japan and these more negative views of Japan? Yeah. Um, well, I'll begin with the less favourable because, I mean, it may be what people are expecting. And yeah, I do think there are those who come to Japan and they see this as a lesser civilization. Um, they treat it in a patronising way. Um, and this will lead to descriptions of it as an elf land, etc., etc., um, I, I'm not going to argue that that didn't exist. It quite clearly did. But what I was interested about in looking at the 1850s and 1860s was in particular in 1858, the first impression um, that those involved in Elgin's mission come to is surprisingly positive. Um, uh, there are a few negative words um, and largely they're to do with the, the sexual mores of the Japanese rather than anything else. Um, the Japanese are being described as licentious, etc. Um, but they, they seem to describe a very well-ordered society. Um, seemingly, they, they believe it's stable. Um, they believe its people to be relatively prosperous. Now, of course, in coming to those conclusions, one thing that they're doing is they're contrasting it with China. And they've been to China where they're not welcome. Um, they've been to China where they have been involved in very difficult talks with the Qing leading to the Treaty of, of uh, Tianjin in 1858. Um, so there are very good reasons why they should see Japan where their welcome is is not hostile as, as more favorable. But there's other there's other interesting things here. Um, interesting things, of course, to, to anybody who's actually been to Japan. I mean, the fact that they arrive in August 1858 um, and they describe Japan's climate in, in fairly favorable terms, as indeed to Sterling in 1858, it surprises me. I mean, I always found the Japanese summer unbearable, but they're actually... They're describing Japan in ways that resonate with their own descriptions of European climate. Um, and in particular, if one thinks about the some of the literature I dipped into on, on British interactions with India and the sense in which the Indian climate was 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 sapping of, of, of European morale, was unhealthy. Um and in a way, linking that to the decline of um, civilizations prior to Britain's arrival, 
Um, and then they're contrasting that with Japan and saying, well, the civilization in Japan is more bearable and that what we find here is not a civilization in decline, but a living civilization. Um, and I found that I found that very interesting. Um, the sense that there were there's a parallel between Europe and Japan that helps to explain why Japan has, though a lesser civilization, not one that is dead, but is still living. Um, and that helps to explain a relative degree of prosperity and stability. Um, so that is leading to a more favorable view emerging. Um, this is bolstered by their interest in uh, Japanese art and design and, and culture more generally. Um, and it means that even in 18, period between 1862 and 64, when there is the possibility of war between Britain and Japan, or at least between Britain and some of the daimyo, that there are those in Britain who still posit a more a positive image of Japan than I was expecting. Um, and I began to think, well, that there is a foundation at least for something. One can't say that inevitably this is going to lead to an alliance in the future. That would be a ridiculous exercise in teleology. Oh, yeah. Um, so I would discount that entirely, but there is something that can be built upon. And once I began to conceptualize that, then the book began to make more sense that there was a foundation and it was looking how that foundation was then built upon, which constructs the first part of the book. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, fi I find that the, it really interesting, you know, that as you mentioned that, you know, they, they sort of had this favorable, even a favorable view of the Japanese climate, even in the middle of summer and how that... Yeah, it, it's, it just seems, you know, insane considering that, you know, one can't survive without air conditioning. But um, yes, um, an interesting view. <laughs> but there again, I mean, as I say in the book, I mean, they every year we need to remember that the British... Royal Navy squadron in East Asian waters never summers in Hong Kong, never, because it's considered the conditions are far too um, hostile climatic climatically. That's really uh, interesting. Um, so so um, in chapter two, you sort of um, say, you know, you, you sort of trace like um, the quarter century following the Meiji restoration in Anglo-Japanese relations. And you've mentioned that this was not received due attention uh, from scholars. So why do you say so? And what were the occurrence that marked Anglo-Japanese relations during this quarter century from, like, say, the late 1868, 1869 to the 1890s? Yes. I mean, I think what I would say is it's, it's not a period in particular that's covered by the international historians. Um, we're not dealing between 1864, 1868, perhaps, and 1892, say we're not dealing with the origins of any war um there's no real progress over treaty revision um and so what we get is uh, a lacuna 
um, in um, Anglo-Japanese relations, which is actually also evident in Western relations with China during the same period. Um, there is this, this, this gap in the literature, which is quite peculiar. Um, there is material written by the cultural historians, but the nature of cultural history is it isn't so much about, it's more about static images in the period rather than images evolving over time. Um, and so I really felt that the period needed a good deal of investigation. Um, one of the things that's important about it is that this is the period when treaty revision is under discussion um, between Britain and Japan. And what we need to be able to do is to explain why in 1894 the British are agreeable to signing a new commercial treaty with Japan. How do you get to that point? What is it that Japan has done between 1868 and 1894 to mean that Britain is willing to sign away extraterritoriality? Not something that it's going to do uh, on a whim. Remember, of course, here that it's not going to get rid of extraterritoriality with um, with Thailand or Iran until the 18 until the 1920s. Not with China until 1943. Um, so there is something very important is happening in this period. Um, so that's what I wanted to look at. Um, and what I say is that the that germ of interest, that foundation that existed in the 1850s and 1860s is leading um, the British legation in Tokyo to report on what is going on in Japan. It's leading to businesses being interested in what market might be developing for their goods in Japan. Um, but also, and, and most interestingly, I felt, it was leading to um, globetrotters, this new phenomenon in, um, in global history, um, making Japan possibly the single most important destination on their journeys around the world. The one that really they were going to find the most exotic. And certainly for many of them, that's the reason for going. It's exoticism. Um, and for those looking for an exotic Japan, well, it's there. And they may well come back to this country and write um, their travelogue dealing with Elfland descriptions. But for the more politically and culturally, aesthetically astute, to arrive in Japan was to find not just Elfland, it was to find a country in motion, a country that was engaged in a process of modernization. Um, and I'm keen to emphasize here, and I, I've been saying to Japanese friends of mine, one of the big things I think that needs to be looked at is the way in which the Japanese facilitate a positive impression of the country being reached. The degree to which both the central government in Tokyo, but also the local authorities in the up and coming cities are 
deliberately providing Westerners with access to prisons, hospitals, courts, institutions like the Mint, uh, the Imperial Mint in Osaka, um, and deliberately trying to cultivate an impression that Japan is advancing. So it's not just a matter of observation on the part of um, Western visitors, in this case, Britons. It's also the way in which the Japanese are themselves uh, not passive in this, but, but active participants in creating this impression. Um, and the other aspect, I think, was also I was interested in how the, uh, the Oyotoi, um, the... Uh, those employed by the Japanese government as special advisors um, were themselves either independently or at the bidding of the Japanese government cultivating a positive impression of the country. Um, and here, particularly in terms of the rise of its higher educational establishments, uh, that, that's something I found very interesting, the way in which... Um, a positive impression is being created very quickly of Japanese science, and in particular medicine. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, I, it's it's quite interesting that from in the 1850s, 18, or rather in the 18, early 1870s, you had these Japanese uh, figures like the Iwakura mission and so on going abroad. And now you have like people from abroad coming to Japan and observing like you know, the institutions of modernity in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 assessing them to work. Um, you know, there are the, these things are sort of they are sometimes mentioned in passing in these globe trotter accounts. Um, and if suddenly somebody will say, "Well, you know, I was in Osaka and I was given a tour of a prison, um, and I was impressed with the uh, with the condition." Um, somebody sees a court in session, um, and it's not the main part of the book. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's still a lot of exoticism still in the, in the very same accounts, um, but it's interesting that they include this material, and one can't help but think that this, you know, that there is there is a very deliberate attempt by the Japanese authorities to to propagandize its modernity. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, so in the next chapter, um, you, you sort of 
discussed like 1894 as this point of transition, uh, which you already mentioned, uh, when a new commercial treaty um, was signed um, and, um, you know, extraterritoriality was um, ended. Um, but you, so the, in, the, this, in, this, uh, in this chapter, you talk about this period from 1894 to 1902. Um, but you also emphasize um, that we shouldn't l- think, you know, that, oh, like in 1902, an- the Anglo-Japanese alliance was signed. So therefore, this was a teleo- teleologically determined. So could you tell our listeners about why you made this argument? Yeah, I thought it, it is very tempting. Um once you get on to 1894, well, maybe suddenly the teleology can come into it. Everything is leading to the alliance. If you actually look at the British assessment of Japan in the summer of 1894, opinion is quite divided. Um, there are those who say, well, okay, Japan's beaten China, but there again, who couldn't? You know, beating China is not that impressive. Um, there are those who look at the Japanese victory and they do come up with the idea that actually Japan as an Asian country armed with Western civilization equals the yellow peril. Um, so two negative assessments, but then underneath it, there is, there are those who are coming to a more positive assessment, but I wouldn't say that they dominate the discourse. Um, I would say that it's more emerging um, underneath, and that it is it's strengthened in the in the f- years after eighteen ninety five. It's strengthened by things like the way in which Japan handles the Chinese indemnity and negotiates um, its entry onto the gold standard. Um, and the way that it handles um, the depositing of gold in the Bank of England, um, the way in which it is now seeking new contracts for um, naval ships to be built in British um, dockyards, um, continuing interest in its... uh, scientific achievement and there's a very interesting assessment which i mentioned in the book of the way that it handles uh, medicine in warfare um during the uh the first sino-japanese war of 1894-95 a sense that you know japan is in no way backwards that actually it could teach the western military forces something about how to handle the wounded um on the front line so a sense that one is dealing with really quite a sophisticated power. Um, so building a new sense of confidence in Japan, but as I say, still still we can see in 1897, 1898, when we get this limited partition of China taking place between the European great powers, there's still in 1897, 1898, a reticence about talking about alliance. Um, which then leads on to the question, well, you know, what is actually the moment which creates a sense that Japan can be trusted? And um, my predecessors in international history, um, including Ian Nish, have, have talked about the significance of the, of the Boxer War 
of 1900. Um, and I was interested into delving into this. That they, it's asserted, but I, I didn't feel as if I, it was clear to me what it was that Japan had done that had created a sense of trust. Um, part of it is, I think, the idea that, well, the yellow peril is disproved if Japan joins with the Europeans to, to crush the boxes. I, I take that point. But it was also simply the way in which I think the Japanese expeditionary force in China cooperated with its British counterparts. Um, and that this was, this was a fairly easy relationship, much easier than the relationship than the British had with the Germans or indeed, and particularly the Russians. And that there was a sense developing from that that Japan would act as a responsible player in international politics. Um, and I think that that's the final moment when at least the British political elite come to a sense that they're not us quite clearly, um, but still they are a responsible and mature power who have taken on a lot of what constitutes Western civilization. If we were to sign an alliance, if if strategic circumstances were such that we felt we needed to bolster our position in the region, then Japan could be relied upon. Um, and the British government is confident that the British public would understand that. Um, so that's that's how I see this progress towards an alliance. It's 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 fitful. Um, it's not clearly uh, linear at all thank you for sharing that so yeah it's not 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 teleologically determined it's not not some something that's certain but it's something you know that this, this interplay between positive and negative views that we talked about earlier sort of continues playing in and then ultimately in 1902 uh, the anglo-japanese alliance is signed yeah and that, and it's to make it clear also in 1902 i do think that um Perhaps the international historians who've written on the on the topic have underplayed the degree of opposition within Britain. There was opposition within Britain. Um, there were those who continued to adhere to a yellow peril standpoint. There were those who were opposed to any alliance. Um, so it's not that opposition didn't exist. It's that the opposition could be contained, and that it was not a majority view. Um, and therefore the government felt with at least a majority accepting this alliance that this was, this was um, practical politics. Thank you. Um, so the next chapter of your book, of course, uh, or rather actually the second half of your book deals with the Anglo-Japanese alliance. So you, you, sort, of, you sort of approach it uh, sequentially. So uh, in the chapter four, you discuss the early period of this alliance and devote significant attention to the Russo-Japanese War. So what impact did the outbreak of this conflict have um, on, the, on, the, on relations between Great Britain and Japan? What was the outcome of Japan's military victory on the Anglo-Japanese alliance? It's, 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 it's a mixed picture. I think it is possible to say between 1902 and 1904 that this is an alliance between two unequal partners. Britain quite clearly sees itself as a senior partner. Um, and 
Um, that it's the British government are still not quite sure should there be a war involving Japan, what the reaction of the British public are going to be. There's still a sort of a level of uncertainty about it. Um, the war itself, again, one sees critics of Japan emerging. Um, but again, I would say that though it's possible for historians to point to this, it is a minority view. Um, overall, the British public um, take Japan's side um, and one sees um, investment in Japanese war bonds being being a popular thing within the financial sector. Um, and there's a sense in which Japan at the end of the war has done Britain a great strategic favor um, by containing the Russian menace. And it's interesting to note, um, as we get on to uh, in, in regard to royal relations, that you can you can see with the in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the war, this is when the war, when the alliance is being most celebrated between the two sides in a symbolic sense. It's when Britain decides to uh, bestow the Order of the Garter on the Japanese emperor. Um, and uh, it begins a whole series of uh, reciprocal visits um, in the royal sphere. Um, and many um, items within the press um, uh, lauding Japan's achievements. And, and also this, this interesting... Um, development at that time, a, a Britain that has, it's questioning its own adaptation to modernity in the light of the problems of the Boer War in South Africa. Um, and wondering whether Britain is in a process of decline. And some actually saying, well, look at Japan, Japan has the answers which is a most fascinating development, um, that Japan's, Japan has managed to inculcate a sense of national unity and patriotism that Britain is lacking. Um, and how has it managed to do that, um, despite its journey towards modernity itself? Um, is there something that Britain can learn from that process? I would say 1905, 1906, there's, there's a good deal of interest in Japan, um, with Japan as, as an interesting exemplar of modernity. That, that's really interesting. Um, you know, Britain, uh, the British are seeing Japan as being sort of this exemplar of modernity or uh, a model yeah. of the modern. Um, yes. And I think related to that, actually, is something that caught my eye also, which you mentioned um, from my own interest, just sort of paradoxically at the same time, even though, it, um, you know, the J Japanese victory was strategically maybe favorable to Britain, was that some of like um, Britain, Britain's colonial subjects also saw inspiration. Um, Absolutely. In military victory. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Where... Yes. And that there are some who are. In, in in the British elite who are, are aware of this, you know, there are these reports, particularly from uh, officials in India, saying, well, the Indians do seem to be remarkably interested in this. Um, and one can also see the same um, coming from the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, there is Arab interest 
um, in in what Japan has achieved and, and a, a degree of uh, Western disquiet um, about this. So yes, it's 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 a very interesting ambivalent moment. Um, it's also interesting in the strategic sense that, uh, of course, with Russia now in retreat, Japan has now become a continental power in China. Um, so Japan's presence in East Asia is much greater than it had been hitherto. Um, and that will create strategic problems. Um, so it's, it's, it's a moment when you can see a whole variety of views being postulated about what this could mean for the future. That's really fascinating. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's so, I mean, there's, there's so many different currents and it's so multi-layered um, that, you know, like, yeah, it, it, I, it, it's quite interesting. Um, so um, in the next chapter, which is chapter five, you continue this discussion um, by, by noting how despite Britain's admiration for Japan's rise, um, the relationship or the, the alliance was not entirely smooth sailing and various tensions emerged. And in, in particular, you talk, for example, about um, racial views among the British and white settler colonies about Japan and how that impacts um, Anglo-Japanese relations. So could you tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about this period? Yes, it's, um, it's a period when, as I, I say when I'm teaching this, this topic and, and we get onto the, the yellow peril, um, my sense is that the yellow peril is not, in the end, terribly important for Europe's relations um, with Japan. Where the yellow peril really um, bites with a vengeance is actually in the the white settler states um, around the Pacific Rim. Um, so that's not just Britain, it's obviously the United States as well. Um, and the Russo-Japanese War leads, the, leads places like British Columbia, California, um, New Zealand, Australia, to become more sensitive to the, the danger that Japanese immigration may now be connected to the rise of Japan as a great power. Um, and that somehow they might be forced to accept Japanese migrants against their will. Um, and this leads um, to the Vancouver riot in um, 1907. Um, and a good deal of, of, of unease um, and we know from the work um, by Lake and Reynolds on drawing the, the global color line um, that they believe that this is a moment when we can see the start of a kind of white solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can see that to a degree amongst these settler communities, although I think perhaps they do overplay Australian um, American relations. But what, what always got me about that assessment was I, I didn't think it described Britain. Um, Britain is looking at this rising racial problem with a good deal of ambivalence. I mean, that there are many, I think, within the public who feel that should there be a war between the white over 
Japanese migration into white settler states that Britain would naturally take the side of the Anglo-Saxons. But the government in, in Whitehall is, is looking at this quite differently. It believes that the Anglo-Japanese alliance is an absolutely crucial element in imperial defence. Um, it is a guarantee that the Royal Navy can be brought out of the Pacific um, back home in order to bolster its position in the North Sea in order to contain Germany. Um, the alliance is therefore a, a vital um, piece of the jigsaw for British global security. And it can't be allowed to be undermined by these fears that are growing in Vancouver, um, in Sydney and elsewhere. Um, so in a sense, the, what, what the British government is doing is trying to manage this relationship. How do we take the sting out of this poisonous racial discourse that's emerging? Um, and it's not easy. There's also problems developing in China itself, um, where the, the Japanese take the Russian position in South Manchuria, and instead of honoring the open door, they're following the Russians in essentially creating a protectorate, and that's creating problems. Um, there's also other elements of I guess a sense amongst some Britons, uh, an expectation that Japan is moving along some kind of Whiggist historical view to becoming completely like the West. And the most interesting group here is, is missionaries, um, Christian groups who believe that Japan might actually move towards adopting Christianity as the final sort of cherry on the cake of it becoming civilized. Um, and find, of course, the Japanese have absolutely no intention of any such thing. And a sense of disillusion growing into Christians, a sense of disillusion that Britain, that Japan's not going to be a sort of a quiescent economic partner. So, many problems for the British government to overcome and to maintain this alliance on an even keel. And that's where symbolic diplomacy comes into play um, as a means of saying to the Japanese, don't, don't listen to the voices off. That doesn't actually represent how the British government sees you uh, or even the majority of British public opinion. Thank you for um, sharing that. Um, so, I mean, I, as I understand it, like now, so there's this misalignment between, for example, like the white settler colonies in, I don't know, Australia or Canada and like the officials in Whitehall. And even within Britain, you have like Christian groups, you have, or like missionaries, you have the governments, like we, we can't like reduce it all to just being like, you know, them all having the same perspective, but rather that there were like many None, views. Yeah, absolutely not at all. I, I, I yeah, I, I don't, I think it's very important when looking at history not to not to deal with countries as monolithic. They never are. Um, it's not easy to judge uh, who dominates discourse or how 
how that domination is maintained. Um, but uh, it's very important to understand and to look at the competing views um, and to assess them. And this is essentially why I would discount an Orientalist view. I think an Orientalist view is 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 simplifying, um, creating a, a, a monolithic impression of another country that really isn't very useful. Thank you. Um, so um, you, you mentioned uh, symbolic diplomacy. Um, so this is a topic that you return to throughout the book, um, and especially like symbolic royal diplomacy between the British and Japanese imperial courts. Um, so throughout this period, um, so can you discuss what role these connections played in shaping Anglo-Japanese relations? Yes, I think it's. I think it is very easy in the present day to underestimate the degree to which this is an element in diplomacy. Um, no matter what your, uh, if if your listeners are um, doing work on certainly 19th century or early 20th century international history, it is important to understand the role, the role of royal courts and how much time is spent by foreign ministries and even individual foreign ministers in handling those relations. Um, these relations are important because of the signals that can be sent through. Um, and in particular, if one's dealing with a relationship which is crossing um, cultural, religious, ethnic boundaries, what Britain is able to do in this relationship is to say, we respect you, we trust you. Um, and race is not a part of this. You are part of a, a royal brotherhood in which you are equals. Um, and again and again, they are trying to use court relations as a way of signaling this trust and respect. Um, and it's hard work. Um, it it involves a lot of a lot of time for the diplomats and and politicians concerned, but it is delivering an important message. Um, and I think it's essential as one element of understanding this relationship. Um, it's also why I also included aspects of the way in which you can see in the alliance period a, a rewriting going on of the relationship between 1858 and 1894-1902. Um, people beginning to describe the history of this period as, as not one of rather tentative relations between the two countries, but one in which Britain is an educator to a Japanese pupil. I think it's quite difficult to look at that period and and come to that conclusion. But that's how it's being written up. Again, as a means of developing trust. And then the other aspect of this, which is not is not communicating trust, but is actually representing real trust, is the degree to which British banks are providing loans to Japan. You don't provide loans unless you think that you are fairly certain to get your money back. Um, so I think that's also a very, it's an important, 
sign for historians to understand what that means. The, the, the desire of the city of London to engage in the loaning of money to Japan, I think, is important to understand as, uh, as a way of measuring how this relationship is working. Thank you for sharing that. Um, in a, another interesting thing that I um, that I that I found in your book was how you mentioned that you know the, the Japanese court comes to be seen as different from you know other Asian courts. Um, so I mean, yeah, that that was also something really interesting about this royal diplomacy. Yes, um, yes. I mean, and the the degree to which they're willing to make excuses for the Japanese court getting some aspects of a ritual wrong. Um, and and not making a, a, a song or dance about it, but, but sort of adapting themselves to the way that Japan's operating. Because the most important thing is that the relationship works, that the trust and uh, respect is communicated. Um, so in the last chapter of the book, you discuss the last years of the alliance uh, between 1914 and 1922, when, um, as you mentioned earlier, it was replaced by the Four Powers Pact. Um, so this period also coincides with World War One and, and its aftermath. So how did this alliance play out during during and after World War One, and why was the decision ultimately made to end the alliance? The alliance does not have a an easy First World War by any means. I mean, as your listeners may know, um, Japan joins the Entente powers in August 1914, declaring war against Germany. But um, the Japanese contribution to the war effort is fairly limited. It's not absent, but it's limited. Um, and Japan seems to spend much of the war either grabbing German interests in East Asia or trying to expand its influence over China. Um, some Japanese pan-Asianists are developing closer contacts with Indian nationalists and other such groups um, in Asia. And there's a great, there's a sense of unease by the end of the war amongst the diplomats and journalists who have served in East Asian posts. A sense that the, the that element of trust that once existed has gone. Japan really can't be trusted. Um, it's not the same within Whitehall. Those without direct experience, day-to-day -day experience of Japan during the First World War are more tolerant of what others would see as Japan's failings. Um, there's a, a moment at which I think Lloyd George says, well, you know, if you compare it to what the activities the French and the Italians were up to, anything the Japanese did could be excused. Um, but there, uh, there is a degree of antipathy towards the alliance, and this is coming at a moment when the alliance in 1921 has to be renegotiated. Um, the alliance was renegotiated in 1905. It's renegotiated in 1911. Its duration is ending in 1921. So Britain's got to decide what to do about it. And as I say, there are elements in Britain who have doubts about the alliance. But the more important thing is that there are elements of doubts in the United States. And because of American doubt, there's also doubt in Canada. 
So Britain has to decide in 1921 what to do. It's also, of course, the era of new diplomacy based on Wilsonian concepts. Britain has become a member of the League of Nations. The relationship between the League and old-style alliances is, is uncertain. There's a sense in which if there is going to be any continuing political agreement with Japan, that it cannot be in the shape that it had been in the pre-1914 era. The security aspects of the alliance have to be diluted. Uh, America has to be invited to become a member of the alliance. And it's this which leads to the events that take place in the Washington Conference in 1921-1922. It's it's difficult to know whether to describe it as the termination of the alliance. I think um, in a material sense, the alliance terminates. But how the British want to play it is that the alliance is transforming into something different which is more akin to the mores and principles of the post-war era so the four power pact is is in a way the alliance transformed rather than an entirely new diplomatic arrangement Um, that's how the british want to play it and at the same time, to talk about the spirit of the alliance enduring. Um, so by no means seeing this as a, as a cutting of ties with Japan. And I think, I think again, some of the historians who worked on this um, are misunderstanding the way in which the Lloyd George administration is approaching this. And I would urge them again to to actually revisit and very carefully read what Ian Nish writes in his book on the the alliance in decline. Uh, Ian Nish is very careful in his language, and I think he gets he gets the essence of it right. Um, and uh, as I say, I think people sometimes simplify what he says. But they need to return to his language. It's very careful. So I think I think what you, you uh, what you just said sort of fits very well uh, with my, um, my next question um, about you know the, the the legacy of the alliance. Um, so in the in the conclusion of the book, you reiterate um, that it is too simplistic to consider the Anglo-Japanese alliance as merely strategic. So could you comment further on this and also um, briefly discuss the legacy of the alliance in the nineteen twenties no. and beyond? Yeah. I mean, it is it is strategic. Any alliance is strategic. Um, the alliance would not have been signed in 1902 unless there was a comity of strategic interests between Britain and Japan. That's why it comes about in the short term. Um, but it also comes about because of a more long-term process, um, which means that this becomes practicable as far as the British government is concerned. That's the point I'm trying to make, that this is this is not something that comes out of the blue. It is building on foundations 
Um, those foundations would not necessarily lead to an alliance coming about unless there was a strategic need for that. The fact is that the Russian threat in 1901 uh, provides that need. Um, so in the end, this is a strategic relationship, but it requires foundations to be built upon. By 1921-1922, those strategic foundations have gone. Um, Russia is no longer seen as posing a threat in strategic terms, nor is Germany. Um, and so therefore, one of the questions in 1921-22 is, what is the alliance there for? And those arguing for maintaining the alliance are essentially saying, well, the alliance exists to maintain, an alliance exists with Japan in order to deter and contain Japan, um, which is a fairly strange idea for an alliance. Um, as I said, the sense I think that the government comes to is that um, the alliance needs to be diluted to fit the times, and that's what happens. Um, in the interwar period, um, the alliance does remain as a, a lingering memory. Um, it's an interesting story in the sense that it becomes mythologized. Um, on the right wing of British politics, the alliance is seen as an exemplar of the way in which politics was done before the unwelcome arrival of President Wilson and the League of Nations. Um, the alliance was uh, a bilateral balance of power arrangement, and that is how Britain ought to run its foreign policy. Um, and in that way, it's, it's, as I say, it's taken an, as an exemplar of much of what British conservatives dislike about the interwar period. They dislike internationalism. Um, they distrust the United States. Um, they believe that collective security is naive. Um, and so the image of the alliance changes um, during the interwar period, um, to the degree that, and this will linger on past 1945, um, to the extent that conservative historians will say that Britain made a fatal error in 1921-22. It shouldn't have renounced the alliance. Um, by renouncing the alliance, it lost any means of restraining Japan and thus made the Pacific War inevitable. And I've argued in a um, article for Historical Journal that, that I, I just don't think that that is, um, that is a, a correct reading of history. Um, I believe that if one's looking at the origins of the Pacific War, it's the events of the Depression between 1929 to 1933 that dictate a road towards the Pacific War. And whether there was an alliance or not is, is here nor there. Um, it would have made very difficult. It, it's very difficult to see how the existence of an alliance would have restrained Japan. It's likely, in fact, the alliance would have just simply been severed at a later date. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much once again, um, Professor Best, for taking out so much time from your busy schedule to talk to me today. Um, so before we conclude today's interview, could you tell us what you are working on right now? Well, as I said earlier, um, this book was originally part of a larger project, which was to do this kind of thing for a period between 1854 and up to the 1970s. Um, so now I'm wrestling with the idea of whether I produce a second volume, which is going from the earthquake in 1923 to the 1970s, or whether there's, again, too much material. And that what I ought to do is to divide this project into three um, and to do a second volume on the period between 1923 and the end of the Pacific War in 1945, and then a separate volume on the post-war period. Um, or as I say, in, into two volumes. I, I must say, as I stand, I am tempted to do a lifetime project um, and divide this into three volumes, which will keep me busy past retirement and beyond. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And perhaps uh, when your next volume is out, we can have you back um, on the New Book Network. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. <laughs> thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.